1: Welcome to the New Books
0: Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Rob Heaton for New Books and Biblical Studies, where I focus on uh, new and exciting scholarship in New Testament and early Christian studies, the orbit of my own PhD. I'm delighted to be talking today with Tom Boomershine about the publication of his uh, recent volume of Collected Essays that uh, collectively challenges a dominant and Uh, often unacknowledged paradigm that uh, undergirds much of New Testament scholarship, and that is its textuality. But first, let me introduce my guest. Thomas Boomershine earned his PhD from Union Theological Seminary in New York in 1974, and is the founder of the uh, Network of Biblical Storytellers International, NBSI. He has taught both in the academy and the church since his graduate studies, including serving as the G. Ernest Thomas Distinguished Professor of Christianity and Communication at United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio, uh, from 2004 to 2006, and uh, as Professor of New Testament for over 20 years before that. His passions and research interests include telling the stories of Jesus by heart, the pedagogy of performing the Gospels, and situating the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Mark, which we'll get into, in the context of ancient media culture as performance literature. His prior publications include Story Journey, that was published by Abington Press in 1988, and The Messiah of Peace, published by Cascade Books in 2015. On top of all this, Tom is joining us today from his home in Ohio to discuss the publication of First Century Gospel Storytellers and Audiences with the subtitle, The Gospels as Performance Literature. This was also published with Cascade Books, an imprint of Whip and Stock Publishers. So Tom, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the New Books Network today.
1: Thank you, Rob. It's a Um, privilege to be here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Tom, as uh, you well know, because we've, uh, just, we've uh, talked for uh, several months now, uh, this is not the first time I've interacted with your work. Uh, during my own uh, doctoral coursework, I came across the performance uh, criticism group at the, at, at the Society of Biblical Literature, and your Messiah of Peace commentary fit well into an um, independent study I was taking on uh, the Gospel of Mark. So, um, that book from 2015, The Messiah of Peace, has not yet been featured on the New Books Network, so it is for our purposes also a new book that we'll uh, be discussing uh, here. It would be almost unavoidable to not discuss it, be, given that it uh, covers much of the same ground as uh, this book of yours from last year, which as I said, is called First Century Gospel Storytellers and Audiences. Uh, I'll try to be conscious about telling the audience when we're referring to something specifically from the 2015 book, um, uh, from the Messiah of Peace commentary, but let's start with your most recent publication, I suppose. Uh, where did this, where did the idea for this volume of collected essays come from, and what are sort of the threads that unite uh, the various essays in uh, in those two covers beyond simply your name being on top of all of them?
1: Well, this, uh, the idea for this came from the editors of the Performance Criticism series uh, that and sock has done. Uh, David Rhodes, Peter Perry, Kelly Iverson. Uh I had uh variously uh published and written uh articles and as part of books that each of these uh editors had had uh had edited and pulled together. And so uh frankly I was uh both uh Honored and surprised that they suggested uh, this collection of essays, and that they thought it was that important.
0: So, so your uh, hand, your hand was twisted a little bit. Uh, you were controlled yeah. into this. Okay, I see how it goes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and uh, so, I was, uh, I was delighted at this invitation, uh, and it is. Uh, there are uh, articles in this from as early as 1982, so it's a. Culmination of you know forty years of research and work in various dimensions of what has become performance criticism, and uh, so another thing that uh, was foundational to this was the establishment of the Bible and Ancient and Modern Media Research Group in the Society of Biblical Literature, which uh, of which I was the founder in. nineteen eighty three uh, was the first uh, meeting. Uh, and that in turn had been a, a part of the saga of this uh, scholarly journey. Uh, I had initially proposed this and it was turned down, and Werner Kelber and I uh, you know commiserated and uh, uh, and I came up with the idea of... Uh, the Bible in ancient and modern media and establishing media studies as a dimension of uh, biblical research. And that has uh, had a a long and distinguished history and uh, has been quite generative. And uh, so I've been very uh, pleased and fortunate uh, to have this Uh, But it's all been part of a community of development that has uh, developed over these now 40-some years. And my research had obviously preceded that. Uh, So, uh, you know, I began my uh, research on the Gospels' story uh, in the late 60s. Mm. So this has been a long time coming.
0: It seems like a a saga uh, over the years, and you get into the difficulties that you had when, even when you were writing your dissertation on this subject. It sounds like your committee didn't know what to do with you uh, for a little bit. Is that is that kind of close to the mark?
1: Yes, <laughs> uh, they were uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, had been encouraging when the proposal was made, but uh, when I submitted the dissertation. Uh, it was partly the absence of, of uh, the uh, cavalcade of footnotes that uh, was, I think, problematic uh, for the committee, uh, but it was also this whole idea uh, of grounding uh, the research in performance and in narrative study rather than uh, the identification of uh, Redaction patterns, uh, the uh, theology that was implicit in the redaction of uh, of Mark and uh, Matthew, Luke, and John. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, uh, their response was fully understandable, but my <laughs> life was at stake. <laughs> so, so it took two years to revise uh, the first submission. Uh, but uh, to their credit, uh, the committee did then approve the dissertation. But it was very—it uh, was a—it was a baptism by fire. <laughs> sure <of> thing. <laughs> what new developments and new methodologies in biblical studies can be extremely controversial. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but there were no martyrdoms in this case. And no. So,
0: Well, fortunately, Uh, let's get into the details of uh, performance theory and performance criticism. So if there's one uh, sort of supposition governing your work or driving your work, I think it's that we as a as a guild need to pay attention to the method uh, that uh, what we now know of as biblical texts were distributed as oral performances of sound. Um, I don't think there's many who would dispute that given the low literacy rates in antiquity, most early Christians, or even before that was a term that was applied to uh, Jesus' followers, uh, experienced the Gospels and other eventual books of the New Testament as either spoken or performed uh, works. I sense that you want to portray then the entire Bible, or at least all the Gospels, as performance literature, and we'll get into the implications of that as we go along today. But uh, first I want to ask you about the way that you contextualize the Gospels as an oral, oral, or spoken and heard experience. Can you talk us through the scholarship involved um, in this evolution from writing to performance, uh, the media and literacy culture of antiquity, And what indications either internal to the texts themselves from Christian or Greco-Roman authors or or, or, uh, internal to the text or external to the text, that is in uh, 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 Greco-Roman authors perhaps, support the conclusions that you uh, make towards performance theory?
1: The most uh, uh, central dimension of this is the recognition that has only recently been widely accepted. That the great majority of people in the ancient world were illiterate and couldn't read and so the uh, the implicit assumption that the gospels were composed for readers is ubiquitous in commentaries and uh, monographs of uh, on the New Testament uh, and what a reader the implicit Uh, assumption is that the reader was reading as we do uh, in silence. Uh, And so that presupposition uh, is now uh, not indicated by uh, research into the media world of antiquity. So uh, the centrality of that recognition that the uh, that there were uh, communities of persons who experienced the gospels, uh, who, were, who were illiterate, and that that was the great majority of the audiences. Uh, so that rather than readers, uh, we need to think of audiences, of listeners, of people who participated in this uh, in the gospel not by the examining of texts, uh, by observing uh, the various developments in textual processes, though obviously those were involved, but that the, uh, the primary experience of the Gospels was as sound. Mm-hmm. That's indicated uh, by, uh, you know, major studies, uh, of the media world of antiquity, uh, and uh, is supported by a wide range of uh, research. One of those areas being the development of research on oral tradition. John Miles Foley, uh, and you know, established uh, the journal of oral tradition that is available on the internet. Uh, so there has now been research on the oral structures of uh, a pre-literate society uh, around the world. So we now know a lot more about the world of orality than we did uh, say 50 years ago. Uh, but it's also the case that, uh, that this Uh, reorientation has methodological implications as well as uh, implications for uh, the uh, character of uh, the media world of antiquity. Uh, As long as we continue to read the text and to read back into the ancient world readers reading texts, we will not perceive the character of the Bible as sound. And that reorientation from silent reading to performance and experience of the Bible as sound is uh, a central uh, reorientation of, uh, of biblical study. Um, so, uh, there's a sense in which uh, In my work, this was a kind of intuition that needed to be tested. Mm -hmm. So I've taken a somewhat scientific approach uh, to this research uh, that we would test to see whether there are signs of uh, oral uh, culture, oral processes of composition, uh, and so that has been one of the purposes of these essays: has been to see what difference does it make. For example, of the ending of Mark uh, at sixteen eight, what difference does it make if it's heard rather than read as a text? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've been testing that hypothesis, uh, and it has been. Very, uh, I don't know, revelatory, it's very, fru- a, very it's, fruitful. Yeah, it's been very fruitful, and it has then the more that I've studied it, the more implications are implicit, and uh, and questions then that have been raised by other scholars who've been impressed by the development of literate culture in the uh, in the Roman Empire of the uh. First century uh, as the context of the New Testament. Uh,
0: we'll we'll get into that uh, test case of uh, Mark sixteen in a little bit, uh, but first let's set the stage a little bit more with um, where this uh, research has taken taken you and others who have focused on Mark as uh, performance literature. So there's there's the first level claim, which you've already expressed, that uh, b- because of low literacy in antiquity. Uh, uh, biblical texts were experienced uh, as, but with the ear, by sound. But there's also a second level claim that stems from your research and I think you're not exactly the first to make the claim, but there's a kind of a group of you. Um, and, And I think this has borne some interesting fruit for the interpretation of the Gospel of Mark. So you frame your work by contrast to traditional historical criticism. So I'll try to set this up the same way. So biblical scholars widely regard Mark as the first gospel written, even though it's second in most New Testaments. Um, Somewhere in the neighborhood of the year 70, given that uh, uh, Mark chapter 13 seems to reflect knowledge of the events of the Jewish-Roman War. Uh, Mark is then used by Matthew and Luke in the decades following the 70s, but searches for the sources of Mark have largely been found lacking. So traditional biblical scholarship can only sort of take us so far. Uh, You and others in the performance studies cohort uh, uh, take a step that has influenced the way that I teach Mark, uh, saying that it was not first written and not merely experienced as performance, but also composed in a performance setting, something like a one man play or storytelling around the ancient campfire for audiences who are interested, right? Why was Mark especially so ripe for this kind of analysis and what indications do you take from its stories and its episodes and the way that the story is told, I suppose, to support this composition and performance thesis?
1: The major, uh, sign of, uh, and, and the tests have been to see whether there are, uh, performance, uh, indications of composition and sound uh, that are implicit in the uh, in the stories. So uh, the development of the uh, research on the sounds of Mark uh, and of the Gospels, but mark is, uh, has been a kind of pivotal uh, center for research in this. Uh, And part of uh, what has confirmed this thesis uh, is uh, the research on the sound structures of of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, So uh, uh, Bernard Brannon and Scott and Margaret Lee have uh, published now major studies of the Gospel Gospels as sound and of the background of the composition in sound. so what has been uh, uh, you know a center of research has been the identification of the Cola and periods that are built into uh, the uh, the structures of uh, of the Gospel of Mark. so in the commentary on uh, Mark's passion narrative, the Messiah of Peace, uh, there is an appendix that uh, outlines and identifies the cola and periods in which uh, Mark was composed. So for for English
0: speaking audiences, we think in terms of sentences and paragraphs. Is it is that is our colon periods com- comparable to that in any way? You might want to explain what colometry uh, is for uh, uh, an audience of listeners uh, to the podcast.
1: Right. The basic recognition is that the units of composition were units of sound rather than uh, text. So uh, the Cola was a unit of breath, so that uh, what's become clear, not just from the study of the New Testament, but from the study of classical Greek uh, compositions, uh, is that they thought in breaths, uh, and that the cola and the periods were a way of building uh, the cola as a short unit and the period as a uh, often as a uh, a combination, a building of cola to a climax, so that uh, what ancient Greek authors valued most was this building up to a climax of the of periodic composition. And what has been uh, what has been realized when that uh, basic characteristic that is identified in the uh, Greek rhetoricians and uh, theoreticians of uh, the composition of sound. Uh, what, uh, When that has been applied to the New Testament, it, it's been found that, uh, that it was composed in cola and periods. So that's one of the dimensions of the uh, commentary on, uh, on Mark that uh, so rather than thinking in sentences uh, and uh, you know commas uh, with phrases and clauses and so on that are literary, uh, what's clear is that uh, Mark was composed as in sounds and units of sound, mm-hmm. units of breath uh, so that... Uh, uh, Another dimension of that is the recognition that uh, it was structured to be memorized, uh, to facilitate memory. Uh, so another part of the function of the cola and periods is that it makes it easy to think uh, and remember the stories uh, in cola and periods, uh, so that uh, mnemonic uh, structures have also shaped the Gospels, and that in turn is a reflection of composition traditions that were present in the composition of ancient Greek literature. So it's not just the New Testament. It's setting the New Testament in the context of the composition of Greek uh, rhetoric, of Greek speeches, uh, oral performances. Uh, so there's the story of Herodotus, uh, who was present at uh, an Olympic competition, and uh, there were, you know, large crowds, and he seized this opportunity uh, to uh, read aloud his new histories to uh, this gathered audience. Uh, and uh, so that's just an example uh, in the Greek world of uh, the same kind of processes that are present, uh, that are implicit in the composition of Mark and Luke, John, and so on. Sure. You'll have to jog my memory here, Tom,
0: uh, because it's been a while since I read your Messiah of Peace commentary, but do we have any indications from the surviving manuscripts of Mark that, um, there are, that it was composed in Kola in periods, or is this something that has to be completely reconstructed um, by scholars like yourself and uh, uh, Lee and Scott and so on?
1: Uh, basically, no. Okay. Basically, uh, the manuscripts are... Uh, a continual uh, uh, writing down of letters with no spaces, no indications of uh, the end of a period. Uh, Those had to be uh, inferred by uh, those who were performing the gospel. Mm -hmm. They had to identify those. It... It appears that that was more normal, uh, that uh, the writing and continual script was not a major problem uh, for uh, both readers uh, and for those who would uh, utilize the mnemonic systems that are implicit in the Gospels to uh, study, learn uh, by heart. Uh, Uh, So, memory was far more important in the development of the gospel tradition than we have given it uh, appropriate attention. And the structures of memory and of cola and periods are intimately connected uh, in the performance world in relation to the ongoing discussions that are happening in relation to textuality. I think a fundamental recognition is that uh, the Gospels and uh, early Christian literature, uh, when they were texts, were still read aloud. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were s- still composed as sound. Uh, so the uh, development of uh, literate culture was not uh, initially primarily a move from uh sound to silent reading, Uh, the reader didn't really develop as a primary object of uh, uh, compositions of literature until the 16th, 17th century. So evidence of that is, uh, for example, in the uh, fiction of Henry Fielding, uh, Tom Jones being uh, uh, a kind of classic example where there are elaborate developments of the author addressing the reader. Uh, and uh, But in the 16th century, uh, the primary address was still, listen, lordings, uh, so that uh, there are clear indications in medieval literature that it was primarily read aloud, so that the development of silent reading as the primary framework uh, for the experience of text it didn't happen until long after the first century. Sure. But this is uh, uh, one of the things that, uh, that uh, Werner Kelberger and I and others have, uh, have recognized is the history, the close interaction of the history of uh, the media of the uh, of culture through the centuries, and the composition of uh, of poetry, fiction, uh, rhetoric. Uh, so composition and sound was still the case that that's how things were experienced until quite late in terms of biblical interpretation.
0: Let's try to step back into that uh, experience of uh, oral storytelling, Uh, because you talk in a few places about how people uh, receive stories in different ways when they're part of an audience hearing a performance. Versus if they are reading that same story uh, silently, so uh, that for example, audiences are likely to will- willingly suspend disbelief if they're enjoying a performance; they're you know they're following it. Whereas silent reading has a tendency, for scholars at least, to activate critical faculties. Um, as a possible analogy to all this, um, um, oh, I. As I was reading this book, I I thought back to the most recent performance I experienced of Godspell and how different, you know, that's based on the Gospel of Matthew and how different that is from reading the Gospel of Matthew for me these days. But you appeal to sort of physiology and brain science to demonstrate how perception differs in each of these circumstances. What does the medium of storytelling and hearing a story told, a good story told especially, do for an audience of a Gospel narrative that silent reading does not?
1: At the core of it is involvement, uh, emotional engagement, uh, and uh, the identification that happens with uh, the identification with characters. Uh, So uh, the uh, development of the compositions uh, is directly related to the difference between the systems of the brain uh, that perceive uh, sound and sight. Uh, so a part of my research has been uh, on the structures of uh, of the brain. And what's become clear is that... Uh, the structures for the perception of sound are a completely different uh, uh, system of, uh, than the the systems of sight. Uh, So they are literally different perceptual systems uh, in the brain for the perception of sound and sight. So the implication of that for biblical study is if we only look at the text and perceive it with our eyes, uh, we are in effect uh, creating a different Bible than the Bible that was originally composed as sound. Uh, What we are doing is uh, in performance criticism, we're literally studying a different Bible uh, than uh, the Bible that is uh, the traditional subject of uh, uh, visual examination of texts uh, and of the reading back of that uh, perceptual system into the uh, perception, the experience of the Gospels, their character. Uh, So, uh, the oral gospel is a different composition, it's a different sense experience than the experience of uh, a composition of sound. Uh, And one way of uh, an analogy to that, uh, I'm a musician, I play the organ and the piano and have uh, since, I was a, since I was a child. Uh, so uh, the present practice, dominant practices of biblical criticism, of examining the text uh, with our eyes, would be as if we were to study, say, the musical compositions of Bach and Mozart and look at the notes, and never hear the music, Mm -hmm. never recreate the sound, which was clearly the reason for the writing down of these compositions by Bach and Mozart. They wrote them so that people would be able, uh, in the aftermath of their publication in manuscripts, to be able to play them, to recreate the sound of those compositions. And it's impact in the culture was to make the music uh, available uh, to a much wider audience than would be the case for those who would be able to make sense of just looking at the uh, at the manuscripts, uh, which great conductors can do. They can look at it and see the sound and Uh, experience, but that's very rare, Uh, and there's a kind of genius that, uh, for example, Leonard Bernstein had who could look at a manuscript, and he could hear uh, what he was looking at, but that's not the case for most people, and that would be an analogy to uh, what we have, what has become customary process with biblical scholarship is simply looking at the text and assuming that we can recreate the sound and we don't. Mm.
0: So in effect, most scholars and in fact, most people who come to the Bible are uh, reading a musical score is uh, the analogy that you use uh, several times in in this book, right? Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, When I think of something like the Gospel of Mark being told or performed in an ancient setting, I get a certain picture in my head of a campfire in the evening or with a storyteller standing and really exerting himself or herself, uh, probably almost entirely from memory. Um, This is kind of what we do when we we read stories to our children. We, We get in character, we speak in that voice, we um, we sell the story, so to speak, uh, for for uh, a, a child who's our audience. Um, but going back to Mark, uh, this question may be beyond our capacity to know precisely what happened. So feel free to punt on this if you'd like. Uh, But what can you tell us about how you personally envision the story having been performed for ancient audiences? Who's in the audience? Who is the storyteller? Does he or she have a manuscript in their hand or, you know, a a notebook or something? Uh, And does your perception here follow the broad consensus of the Gospel of Mark, uh, likely appearing for the first time around the year 70? We
1: took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember, hot and icy, cold—the rage of the earth. We made this curse. carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what
0: will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade
1: Two. Play it now with Game Pass. The uh, there are clear allusions to the Jew- the Jewish War. And to the destruction of the temple in Mark, that make it clear that uh, the composition of the gospel uh, happened in the more or less uh, immediate aftermath of the war. So the early seventies as a time when Mark was being composed, uh, I I think it's it's significant that uh, it appears that Josephus was writing uh, the Jewish war, so on, in that same period. Uh, And so, uh, but the way that I would envision uh, these compositions being performed is that uh, variously in synagogues, uh, in homes, uh, where there were courtyards at uh, meals uh, that would be uh, sometimes uh, long period uh, extended uh, readings of which we have evidence, and of course there's the in the background of the uh, performance world of the uh, of ancient Greek culture is Homer and the performance of the Iliad. And the Odyssey. those were long compositions uh, that would be told for hours. Uh, sometimes all night uh, would be a uh, a normal performance of, uh, say the uh, the Iliad. Uh, so people memorized the whole of the Iliad there were composition uh there were recital uh, contests uh that uh, Plato made uh, uh uh made fun of uh as uh, uh you know not thinking clearly uh in abstract categories but rather simply reciting stories as uh um, uh, as as an exercise that that he found in 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 a way, a kind of mindless memory, uh, and uh, so uh, there is uh, in the ancient world, uh, there were lots of different contexts in which there would be performances. Uh, within the community of Israel, uh that was a normal practice, uh, in, uh, in synagogues. Uh, and, uh, and it would have been something that, uh, uh, would be, uh, entertainment. It would, you know, to have an evening of, uh, um, a meal or of gathering a group of 20, 30 people, uh, in a courtyard of a house, uh, for a storyteller to then uh, stand and uh, recite, sometimes uh, handing it off uh, so that there would might be two, three, four storytellers who would tell various parts of things. but there were uh, performance occasions uh, that were uh, uh, the primary entertainment world of, uh, of ancient culture. Uh, so uh, there's, there is broad evidence uh, of this performance tradition uh, in the ancient world and of the telling of the stories in a variety of contexts.
0: I don't think you would go so far to say as that uh, Mark was uh, entertainment or meant to be entertainment. Uh, obviously, from the title of your Messiah of Peace commentary, you think that there's a message that Mark is trying to convey and convince his audience of that, uh, you know, Jews who have very recently, not necessarily individually, but collectively followed um, uh, the path of war. Um, right. You need to be convinced of this Messiah of peace, who uh, at once came along, and they can still choose to follow him uh, today, even though it's many decades after he has passed.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, at the core of the gospel, I think, is the presentation of Jesus of Nazareth as a candidate, as a Messiah figure, who was radically different than the primary Messiah tradition, which was a tradition of warriors. So the stories of uh, Saul, David, the kings of Judah and Israel, uh, the word Messiah is used for them in the Septuagint. Uh, they are regarded as Messiah figures. Uh, so Jesus was uh, Uh, and the Jesus' stories in the aftermath of the war were an appeal to follow a different way than the way of the war, which had been the greatest tragedy in the entire history of Israel. Uh, You know, current estimates are that uh, well uh, over a million and a half people uh, from the community of Israel were killed in that war uh the uh, the country was significantly decimated. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, the, te- the temple was leveled. Uh, the, there was there's uh, really uh, the uh, that war had a direct impact uh, that was uh, 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 catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh the community the total community of the uh israel may have been uh six million uh in somewhere in that range so that uh you know maybe a third of the population was killed in that war so that it is not i think uh at all uh Uh, pushing the evidence to say that there was uh, an appeal to a Messiah who uh, indicated a different way than the way of the zealots and of the warrior traditions of Israel. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, uh, the the Gospels are highly distinctive uh, literature in, in the context of the Uh, history of the composition, the compositions of the, what we variously call the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, So from, uh, uh, and also a dimension that was the outreach to Gentiles. And that was, uh, I think, a central uh, issue uh, that was one of the sources of the growing division between the followers of Jesus and the followers of the rabbis uh, was uh, the relationship with the Gentiles and whether separation from the Gentiles needed to be uh, uh, enforced. uh, And that, uh, that the Gospels were performed then for audiences of both Jews and Gentiles uh, in those decades after the war. Very good.
0: Um, I want to turn now, since this is sort of a retrospective of your of your career in these two covers, uh, to kind of contextualize your scholarship within your personal story, because I always like to gain an appreciation of where a scholar is coming from, how they first got interested in a subject and sort of carved their niche, which I would call this your niche and uh, how that sort of interplay of circumstances coalesces into a passion, which I can sense for you. Um, Especially in the context of these collected essays, it seems like you've had two pretty active periods of scholarship, uh, one in the uh, 1980s and early 1990s, and another in the roughly last dozen years or so. Um, um, But it's easy to see how your essays from your early interests have uh, paid off in recent years as well. So uh, all that said, how did you first become interested in pursuing biblical texts as compositions of a different media culture of our, than our own, um, and have your interests evolved over time, or have you, as you've gained more experiences in performing biblical narratives yourselves?
1: One of the pivotal experiences that I uh, had that uh, generated the interest in exploring Mark and the Gospels as performance literature was listening to Black uh, storytelling preachers. In uh, Brooklyn and uh, in uh, Chicago. Uh, So I did field work uh, in uh, East Harlem and then Brooklyn, and then uh, was a pastor uh, on the west side of Chicago uh, in the area that was burned after Dr. King's assassination. And uh, um, so I was very impressed by the fact that you could go to a worship service and the sermon could be anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes. And at the end of that, that people would be cheering for more. (laughs) Uh, And so I was very impressed by the impact of the storytelling preachers uh, who uh, created stories, that they would essentially compose on the spot. But clearly they were very, very sophisticated uh, and learned persons. Uh, and that was very different than my initial assumptions about, uh, about black preaching. It really changed my mind. And so I wanted to find out more about whether there was uh, uh, evidence of uh, something analogous to uh, the impact of, uh, of storytelling preaching uh, in the black church. Uh, so that, uh, that was the immediate prelude to my decision to go back to uh, union and do a PhD. Okay. Uh, so this
0: is between your master's and your PhD while you were, right. while you were a
1: pastor yourself. Right. Right. Uh, then uh, a pivotal. Uh, well, I began then telling stories at Union, uh, and uh, and that was uh, weird. <laughs> there, there were no precedents for that. So, uh, so on the one hand, uh, among my fellow students and uh, professors, uh, there was uh, some degree of interest. That was the case with my committee. Uh, but they were, uh, uh, but there was also a significant degree of skepticism about, you know. So I remember uh, asking myself, you know, did I want my reputation to be as a biblical storyteller, you know? And it hardly seemed like uh, uh, what a sophisticated intellectual uh, would do. Uh, it seemed naive and uh, and a, a kind of I don't know almost childish uh, assumption about uh, uh, that. Uh, what I found was that the more that I told the stories, the more I was interested in them. Hmm. So I had a I had a, a kind of pivotal moment. Uh, I had received approval to do. My dissertation on Mark's story. Uh, so I got out all the books on Mark, had them on my shelves, uh, and it was all uh, source criticism and study of texts, and uh, I was getting nowhere in relation to uh, my goal of learning more about Marcus's story. And I had a moment uh, of despair. Uh, when I, uh, uh, I could see I was getting nowhere and I didn't know what to do. And I had a kind of epiphany uh, that uh, uh, it was, the message was, put away all your books, uh, memorize uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, well, and in this case, the Passion Narrative, uh, in Greek, and, uh, and chant it with your guitar. <laughs> and uh, needless to say that sounded crazy <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I did and, uh, and it was a, a, a turning point in my research was that uh, I realized in, uh, in learning it that there was a whole different world uh, in the oral performance of the story, than there was in the study of the text. Hmm. Uh, another pivotal moment happened in the immediate aftermath of my receiving the PhD in 1970, in the spring of 1974. In November of that year, I was on my way to teach in Bedford-Stuyvesant in a program, uh, a certificate program that we were doing at New York Theological Seminary. And uh, my car was overheating, and I stopped at a filling station on the Bronx River Parkway uh, to talk to, the, to an attendant. I was standing in the back of a car, and he yelled, watch out! And I turned around, and I was immediately on the ground. Uh, my legs were smashed. Uh, I had been hit by this car. Uh, I was out of work for a year, I was in CAS for six months. And during that time, the stories that I had learned uh, and told, especially the story of the healing of the paralytic, uh, became uh, a lifeline for me. Uh, And so in the ordeals of uh, physical therapy for every day for six, nine, 12 months, uh, I would tell myself that story. In the aftermath of that, I realized that I uh, was more interested in enabling people to uh, learn and tell the stories than I was in writing a a series of books Mm. of research. Uh, So I started uh, teaching. I developed a storytelling workshop and started teaching uh, my students to learn and tell the stories. And out of that uh, grew the network of biblical storytellers, uh, that has become uh, what it was founded in 1977, and uh, and after I started doing workshops for a year, uh, and uh, it is now an international community, uh, and uh, uh, so that part of my work has been as a a coach uh as you know I've done workshops all over the world uh and uh that uh, that recognition that it was there was a different dynamic uh of people learning and telling the stories than there was of their reading a text mm-hmm. wow, and, wonderful, uh, yeah, so it's been uh very generative, and then the Bible and ancient modern media was the next uh I also recognized that I wanted there to be a scholarly foundation for uh, the storytelling, and uh, that uh, there was a, a big hole in the world of biblical scholarship, which was the study of the media of the Bible. Uh, form criticism, redaction criticism, source criticism were all based on the study of texts. Mm-hmm and there was no place in the world of biblical scholarship for the study of the original medium of the Bible. So the Bible and Ancient Modern Media group has been in existence now since 1983 and has generated, in turn, this whole development of first narrative criticism and now performance criticism, which is what we've kind of settled on as a community Uh, as a description of uh, a study of the Bible as sound, as uh, materials that were performed for audiences rather than read as Mm -hmm. texts. So uh, it's been, it has been a kind of saga, I guess. (laughs) Uh, There are, you know, moments, pivotal moments that have uh, led to... uh, um, I don't know, the exploration of uh, this material in a radically different way. And it's proven to be quite generative. We'll see what happens. Indeed. Uh, But... as you and tell your it, as
0: you tell your story, Tom, it, it strikes me that this uh is uh, uh starts well before the publication of Mark as story. So that wasn't around when you were collecting books on Mark, right? No. And no. you know that's now in its second or third edition, <laughs> right? Um Yeah,
1: it's been uh, that's yeah. It's uh, it's still in publication after it was published in nineteen eighty eight. Yeah. Uh,
0: Let's uh, return the discussion to Mark, I suppose, which is, uh, as I indicated earlier, where I find your work really compelling. Uh, um, at the same time, I want to get into the weeds a little bit about uh, the various elements that you call upon as essential to performance criticism, so sound mapping the Greek text. Uh, that, uh, that in fact, is the title of the Lee and Scott book that you referenced earlier, Sound Mapping the New Testament, published by uh, Polebridge in uh, 2009 or so. Um, <clears throat> want to make sure hey. I got that in there, uh, since you uh, spoke it into existence and there's a early. second
1: edition of the that book that has been oh. published in the Performance Criticism series. Oh, wonderful, great.
0: Yeah. Um, and you also talk about the narrative techniques of Mark, uh, the way that he gets inside inside views of particular characters and asides directly to the audience, kilometry, um, how all these sort of combine to reveal Mark's purposes, I suppose. Um, I think, uh, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think all of these elements come together very um, uh, poignantly in the way that Mark ends his gospel um, with the tomb pericope at uh, 16, 1 through 8. Uh, it's been a controversial pericope, uh, e- uh, even downright unacceptable to some of the earliest readers or hearers, however we want to say it, to... Uh, uh, of Mark, that being Matthew and Luke, who had to, you know, add on to say that this is this wasn't the end of the gospel. But um, you suggest that all of these essentials of performance criticism support sixteen eight, with the women fleeing from the tomb and telling nobody as the intended conclusion of Mark's gospel. So, all that said, that whole preamble, big ask here. Can you explain how you handle this episode from a performance-critical perspective and what the Mark and composer's intentions are for ending the gospel in such a narratively dissatisfying way?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, obviously, uh, a conclusion would be, if it was dissatisfying, it would be dissatisfying in a way that was generative. Uh, that was uh, uh that posed an initial dilemma uh for the listeners uh the uh, what uh what has become clear I've written now uh several uh major articles on sixteen eight that are collected in this new book uh And uh, the subjects of the articles are, on the one hand, the narrative techniques that are uh, implicit in uh, the ending, uh, the creation of enigmatic endings uh, that uh, then require the listener to think uh, about what does this mean. Uh, So the ending at and 652 of the, uh, Jesus walking on the water and, uh, feeding the 5,000, uh, ends with, uh, the, uh, uh, the story, uh, that, uh, uh, they didn't understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened, uh, so, uh, Makes you ask more ask heart more heart
0: questions heart. than, you know, have right. a, a it solution generates... that's settled. Yeah, right.
1: right. It requires the listeners to think. Uh, the same is true with the ending of the uh, crossing of the water in the aftermath of the second feeding, uh, when the disciples don't understand. And Jesus asks them, don't you understand? Well, this is addressed to the audience. Uh, don't you understand about the loaves? When I fed the 5,000, How many baskets did you collect? Uh, Twelve. And when I fed the four thousand, how many baskets did you pick up? Seven. Don't you understand? And of course, that's addressed to the audience, uh, who are then invited as ones who hear with the same ears as the disciples to answer the question. You know, uh, don't you understand? Well, obviously they don't. And part of the impact of that is then to want to hear what comes next in the story. Uh, the combination of inside views that is present uh, in the stories, for example, of Peter's denial, uh, the, the uh, where there's, uh, uh, w- which ends with, uh, Peter uh, breaking down of his weeping. Uh, the so there are short sentences. There are inside views. There are enigmatic endings uh, that require the listeners to think. Mark does this several times. The most generative, the most enigmatic, is. 168 uh, where there is this uh, use of uh, combination of narrative, storytelling techniques, uh, forms that uh, that are concentrated in 168. Another dimension of that is the study of the Cola and periods uh, that are implicit, in the composition of the gospel. It ends with the shortest uh, sentence, a narrative comment uh, that is uh, uh, a big puzzle, you know, and requires the listeners to think, you know, and to ask, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to run away and say nothing to anyone? Uh, or am I? Or what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is to tell the story. Uh, so uh, maybe I'll just tell you that story, so that uh, uh, people can get a sense of uh, what the impact of it is when it's told.
0: Let's hear it. So we've been sitting around listening to this storyteller for almost two hours, maybe more than two hours. A little and, more than two hours. Yeah. Right.
1: No <laughs> Go ahead. On the next day, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James, the mother of James and Salome went out uh, to the tomb uh, to anoint his body. And so when morning came, they went out to the tomb as the sun was rising. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the door of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away. Now, it was a big stone. Going into the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right hand, clothed in a white robe, and they were amazed. But he said to them, don't be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He's been raised. He isn't here. Look at the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him, just as you said, just as he said to you. But going out from the tomb, the women fled for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. They were afraid. Well, it's a, it's,
0: it's a really confounding ending. Um, it is a, a, as you appeal to um, uh, the ending of Jonah. In fact, uh, as being another confounding ending of a biblical yes. story, uh, it's, it, it's not narratively satisfying. It it, it makes me think of um, oh shoot, uh, <laughs> a Coen Brothers film, um, a good a serious man. Uh, Which it riffs off of Jonah and or Job, the Job story actually in some ways, and ends with a tornado that just sweeps through the town. And of course, everyone wants a happy ending. Everyone wants a fulsome ending to know what actually happened. This one sits with you in a way. And I'm going to read a quote of yours from page 142 of uh, of of your book, uh, First Century. gospel storytellers and audiences you say the last words the the climactic short cola are neither descriptions of what happened with jesus's death and resurrection nor statements of the promise of his appearance in galilee they are explanations of the women's flight and silence that are addressed to the audience in mark's provocative manner uh, however those explanations of the women's flight and fearful silence raises many questions as they answer at the end of the story the performer turns to the audience and addresses them directly In the provocative silences, in the climax of the story, therefore, hang the questions. How will I or we respond to the news of the resurrection? Will I or we flee? Will I or we be silent and say nothing to anyone? Will I or
1: we be afraid? Right. Well, one of the problems that we have as biblical scholars, I think, is that we have approached the Gospels as a source of theology rather than as stories. And so if one reads this in silence as an ending of the gospel, it doesn't make sense. Uh, it only makes sense in the context of the storytelling traditions of Israel and of the degree to which over and over again in the in that literary tradition, uh, a primary impact is to provoke the audience into thinking. those uh, the prophets are full of provocative statements uh, so that the the performance literature of Israel is full of provocation rather than confirmation. Uh, it's uh, intended, clearly to require the audiences to think to examine for themselves you know what uh, what these are uh, what these prophecies what these stories so on what they what they mean so that the meaning is not so much a meaning as reference to theology or history they're rather meaning as experience and these storytellers prophets, so on, were all highly skilled storytellers and uh, prophetic uh, speakers.
0: It's an understandable, um, (laughs) I guess, leap that we do where we want to see it as theology. After all, we do have Matthew and Luke, we do have the resurrection appearances. We were baffled by the fact that Mark doesn't include them. And in fact, Mark does include them. Uh, if you uh, read one of the, one of the endings uh, of Mark that are, you know, in brackets in, in English translations. Um, so we want the fuller story, but um, sure. uh, um, Mark doesn't natively supply it. Um, one claim you make about mark and purpose uh, in one of your essays, you say that the purpose of the story was to move its listeners from opposition, opposition to Jesus uh, to belief in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. <clears throat> um, involved in this is a recognition for you that the audience may at first be predisposed to resist this Jesus and instead identify with one of the groups that are opposing him, I suppose, like the Pharisees, but they are eventually welcomed in to identify with the crowds who are attracted to him and then to his closest disciples, uh, who they, you know, they want to root for uh, toward the end. But this is all somewhat in contrast to the conclusions of other scholars uh, that Mark is a gospel already written for Jesus following communities. So uh, uh, why do you think that the likes of Adela Collins and uh, Joel Marcus, uh, big names in scholarship, who you cite many times, have gotten this basic point wrong? And then what is the proper context for the emergence of the gospel of Mark told approximately in its final form resembling the text that we have today?
1: I think at the core of the problem uh, that uh, Adela and Joel uh, have identified is that they studied the text as a source of, uh, on the one hand, theological ideas, on the other hand, as a source of uh, potential historical information about Jesus and uh and what he did and said, uh, when the gospel is studied as a text, there is a different framework of meaning that is developed than when it is told and heard. And so uh, that difference means that there's a completely different perception of what the Gospel of Mark is, what it was. and so it, uh, you know, I have the greatest respect and appreciation for uh, the scholarship that has preceded us, uh, and the scholarship that's implicit in the Anchor Bible commentaries and so on. But I also now, you know, I have to confess that, uh, that when uh, I uh, listen to, say, the Gospel of Mark uh, as a composition uh, performed for audiences, the frameworks of meaning are radically different than uh, are present when it's studied as a text. Uh, That change of media, that difference between the way in which it's perceived with the eyes and the way it's perceived when it's heard with the ears as in the aftermath of performing and telling the story and seeing and experiencing the dynamics of interaction with the audience, those dynamics change the framework of interpretation. Uh, it's not the same gospel. So I think at the core of the reason why uh, there has been, uh, why there is such difference, is the difference of media, the difference of the way in which it's experienced. So. For Mark to be experienced as performance literature, and this would be true for Matthew, Luke, John as well, uh, there are different conclusions that are implicit in, for example, the study of audience address and the way in which the audience is addressed. So the implicit assumption in these commentaries, uh, Hermeneia and Anchor Bible Commentary. Uh, the uh, assumption is that they were uh, texts uh, read by readers. Uh, whereas when it is experienced as addressed to audiences, uh, the structure of audience address can only be perceived when the story is told as a whole and experienced as it was experienced by the audiences. So it does move. Uh, There are clear patterns to audience address in the Gospel of Mark. So the early uh, uh, chapters of Mark build up to the climax of the response of the those who were in the synagogue, to the healing of the man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees and the Herodians went out and began to plot how they could destroy him. Uh, And that's the climax of a series of conflict stories that have preceded that, that are addressed to the audience, uh, in which they're invited to experience their own resistance to uh, and uh, to the these uh, defiant actions of the uh, breaking of the law that Jesus does. Uh, and beginning in chapter four, the audience and the end of three, uh, the audience is addressed as people who are potentially interested in Jesus. And interested in following him and learning more about him. And so there are a series of stories then that address Jesus' positive interactions. And then there is the whole section of the address to the audience as Israelites who are confronted with Jesus doing good, healing the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, Uh, feeding four thousand uh gentiles uh what are we to make of this messiah who reaches out to our enemies in the aftermath of the war uh and in the sections that follow the messianic confession the audience is addressed as disciples uh as ones who are following and trying to figure out you know what does this mean uh which leads in turn to then the stories of the Jesus in the temple uh, and in which he uh, proclaims, uh, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer among all the nations, that is among all the Gentiles, but you've made it into a den of lay a den of revolutionaries, into a place of warfare. Uh, and that in turn so infuriates the authorities, the chief priests and the scribes, that they begin to plot how they could destroy him, how they can kill him. Uh, why such a radical response? In the aftermath of the war, there's no ambiguity about why there was such uh, a degree of hostility that is built, and that in turn leads to Jesus' death. But it leads also to the disciples being faced with the decision to follow him, to stay with him, to die with him, or to run away and deny him. And that's the; those are the endings that precede then the trial uh, before Pilate, in which the people demand those who have been the crowd which has been the most sympathetic character throughout the gospel suddenly turns on Jesus and demands his crucifixion. So what does that mean in relation to what we are going to do in response to the resurrection? Uh, well that whole gospel structure is uh, is structured to, Invite the listeners to move from opposition to jesus to uh, to discipleship. Uh, and the implicit uh, conclusion from that is that the audiences were not just followers of Jesus who were part of early Jesus communities, but they're primarily addressed to people who were who did not believe that Jesus was the messiah uh, and but that there is a an appeal that is implicit in the structure of audience address uh, that, uh, uh, that Jesus is the Messiah uh, and that the way to peace is not war, but is rather reconciliation with enemies. It sounds strangely contemporary mm-hmm. given the choices that we are presently facing uh, and have continued to face over the years.
0: It does have an ever evergreen resonance.
1: I, uh, I'll admit. Right. So. Uh, so this uh, uh, the restructuring of our experience of Mark as uh, a story of sound experienced by audiences. Changes our whole framework of understanding of the impact of this gospel, in in my uh, in my opinion, and uh, and as a I think a more or less inevitable conclusion of hearing the gospel told all the way through and paying attention to the structures of uh, relationship between the storytellers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and their audiences.
0: Um, In one sense, though, uh, Tom, it's understandable that we approach Mark as a text because the text is something that we have to grasp onto, even though we aren't allowed with our grubby hands to touch the ancient manuscripts that we have. We do right. val- we do valorize the papyri and the, you know, the pandect Bibles that we have that uh, include full copies of Mark, which looks like a text, right? It, it looks like it was written down. So I'm wondering if you could address the question of Mark as written literature uh, because whatever form it was composed within uh, obviously the gospel is written down at some point and eventually transmitted throughout the early christian world as a written record even if it's meant to function as a score for performers Um, but um, the earliest commenter that we have on the gospels um, as they were known in the second century is papius via eusebius from the fourth century And Papias seems to know that Mark is a written text, which he contrasts against the living and abiding voices of of the apostles, um, who he wants to hear more from, as as he says. Uh, And the two most common solutions to the synoptic problem presuppose a text that can be manipulated by authors uh, that we know of as Matthew and Luke. And the text of Mark that we know today contains at least one major nod to its own textuality—the uh, let the reader understand of of Mark thirteen fourteen that Matthew also preserves, but would seemingly be kind of unoriginal to a performance composition to be talking about a a reader in a little aside like that. So my question is something like this: How would you conceptualize the move from performance to a relatively fixed and apparently well distributed text? Uh, Was this an isolated performance somewhere in the Eastern Mediterranean that, um, you know, a traveler coming through wanted to be written down? Or is this written down as a way to train future performers of the gospel? And furthermore, uh, I tend to pile questions upon questions. Given all this context...
1: Remind me. (laughs)
0: <laughs> who is the composer or author that we continue to call Mark? Is he the first person who performs it? Is he the last person that performs it in kind of the settled form that we have it now? And what does this do for the um, uh, typical story of authorship of this gospel uh, of a, by a companion or a traveling secretary of Peter?
1: Right. Well, uh, the quotation of Eusebius... Uh, about uh, the church in Rome asking Mark to write down the uh, stories that they had heard from Peter. The end of that, which is regularly not noticed or quoted, is that Mark then took the gospel which he had composed and went to Egypt and proclaimed the Gospel that he had written uh, so presumably that is related to the establishment and development of the church in Alexandria. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, so the, the end of the story in Eusebius is that Mark went and performed it in Egypt. Uh, so the role of the composition of the gospel uh, in Eusebius' account, uh, which he gets from Papias, uh, is uh, that Mark told the story uh, in Egypt uh, that he had written down uh, from hearing the stories told by Peter. Uh, One of the things that we have not discussed uh, is the what happened during the period from the resurrection of Jesus and sometime in the early 30s until the composition of Mark uh, in the early 70s, uh, some 40 years. Uh, there may have been uh, textual uh, developments in that period. Uh, So uh, it may be that there were uh, uh, some textual formation that happened in what we now call Q, Uh, but it's more likely, in my opinion, that those stories continued to be told, the stories of Jesus, as is reflected in Eusebius' story, uh, that they were told by Peter and by the apostles, and that that storytelling tradition grew and expanded, and that it had both the narrative structures that are preserved in uh, and were remembered and written down in Mark's uh, composition of the gospel, but also all the teaching materials, uh, the parables and sayings of Jesus, uh, that became a structural element in Uh, the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. Uh, And then there is this anomaly of the Gospel of John uh, that is uh, another result of this long tradition of some 40 years of storytelling. I think uh, that we need to take more seriously uh, the role of uh, performance, Uh, throughout that period, uh, and uh, that, that that in turn would shape our understanding of the generative character of storytelling. And so in terms of the text, the role of the text was to preserve the stories that had been told, that they remembered. And the primary source of the memory of those stories and the sayings and parables and so on were the apostles. Uh, Jesus ran a, uh, a, a kind of traveling seminary in which uh, the disciples were invited, indeed uh, required by their teacher, to learn and repeat uh, his stories both the stories about him and the stories that he told about the kingdom of God. Uh, And that that period was extraordinarily generative uh, and resulted in recomposition of some of the stories so that there was more connection with the experience of communities later, uh, so that there was uh, ongoing creativity in the Uh, formation of those, uh, those traditional stories. So the, the textuality is a natural development, but it didn't mean that the stories stopped being told. They continued to be read, and we don't have time right now, but uh, just to summarize, uh, if one examines than the history of the transmission and the continued reading aloud of the traditions of the Gospels throughout the centuries. There's been a close correlation between the development of new systems of interpretation and the development of media. Uh, the most graphic, of course, is the development of the printing press and the radical change that took place uh in relation to the authority of the uh, of the papacy with the Protestant Reformation, when people were enabled by the development of the printing press uh, to read the stories for themselves rather than only uh, hearing them read uh, in uh, churches. But the most significant for biblical scholarship The most significant change was this transition to hearing, uh, to rather uh, reading the text in silence as a source of documentation. I think the most important book about the history of biblical interpretation is Hans Frey's The Eclipse of Biblical Narrative. And what he identifies is that it was in the period of the Enlightenment when there was a concerted effort on the part of a whole uh, community of scholars to make sense of the Bible as a source of referential information about, on the one hand, its ostensive value as a source of information about what actually happened, the quest of the historical Jesus, And on the other hand, the development of an identification of the referential meaning as a source of theology, what he calls ideal reference, the ideas that were implicit in uh, the development. And so those two uh, foci of biblical scholarship, Quest of the Historical Jesus and New Testament Theology. have been a source of credibility for uh, the Gospels in the context of Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment culture. Uh, So uh, the identification of the synoptic problem uh, has lent credibility uh, to uh, a historical critical examination of the texts as sources. Uh, And it has been uh, an amazingly creative process that has given the gospel's credibility in the context of this much later textual culture. Uh, So, uh, my explanation would be that we, on the one hand, want to preserve the great values that have Developed from the study of the gospel as texts, and also to bring to this the new knowledge that is emerging from the study of the gospels as performance literature, as stories that were told to audiences uh, in the ancient world, and the potential creativity and energy that's present now as a potential for. the reclaiming and the re-experiencing of that uh, storytelling tradition.
0: Great. Um, so let's turn away from Mark and the Gospels for a little bit, and um, I want to focus on what we might call critiques of performance theory, or better yet, opportunities, you know, it's not a threat, it's an opportunity for further right. refinement of the argument that you and others make about the original medium of these texts. So for for one, I'll be interested in any reflections you have on kind of the state of where performance theory is today. Um, what has its uptake been? How, how have you seen it received by scholars in general? But on a to use a specific example, um, performance critics have faced critique, and I'm not thinking here of you, but rather of people like Kelly Iverson, David Rhodes, and others, have faced critiques from textualists in the Guild, like uh, the late Her- Larry Hurtado, who pithily called out the oral fixation he sends growing... Uh, um, um, uh, he since growing that downplays an emerging culture of textuality in the Augustan age. So uh, what was Larry Hurtado getting at when he um, uh, launched a a miniature critique against the performance critics? Um, And do you see any merit to his claims that performance theorists have oversimplified the data from antiquity and turned it into sort of an either-or binary of orality versus textuality, and then, you know, sided with the orality side of things at the expense of losing an understanding of an
1: emerging
0: textual culture?
1: I, my own opinion is that uh, that there is no, uh, that there is abundant evidence of the development of textual culture in the Augustan uh, Roman period, uh, the question is not whether that is present, whether that was a, a a a significant factor in the composition of the New Testament. It's rather, what did it mean? Uh, it did not mean the silencing of The tradition, uh, in my opinion. Uh, The evidence would indicate that the only way that it was possible for the Gospels to have had the kind of impact that they had in that period was if they extended beyond the group of 10, 15 percent maximum of people who were literate to the great masses of people who became part of the Jesus movement uh, and what became the early church. Uh, So uh, the uh, ambiguity associated with uh, the combination of uh, textual culture and the continuing primary culture, of orality, uh, which remained the dominant culture, uh, you know, throughout this uh, this and subsequent periods, most people couldn't read for centuries. Uh, so I think that uh, uh, that needs to be a primary focus because of the degree to which. Uh, the assumption of textuality has, uh, I think, in significant ways, locked us into uh, a preservation of that uh, textual culture, and have read that back into the ancient world uh, as a as the dominant uh, thing, and that it justifies then uh, a continuation of. Reading the scriptures in silence, uh, and/or in of what I would call a, a somewhat wooden, uh, emotionless, objective reading of the scriptures that has become the source of boredom <laughs> in uh, worship services by the millions uh, around the world. Uh, so. Uh, um, so I don't uh, I don't uh, at all you know disagree uh, with the the recognition of the emerging textual culture, but I would say that uh, it was a culture of elites. Uh, there is no evidence that there was a broad uh, increase in literacy. That really didn't happen until the aftermath of the printing press. Uh, so, uh, the, uh, the emergence of textual culture was very important in the formation of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's one of the primary differences between the emerging Jesus movement and what became the church and rabbinic Judaism which continued to emphasize the oral law and the recitation of the scriptures uh, by heart uh, and uh, as sound. Uh, so that was, uh, those were characteristics of uh, of rabbinic Judaism. Uh, but it, uh, uh so there was the development of a of a much uh, different uh, textual culture uh, in the formation of the early church, uh, but that doesn't mean that it became uh, almost instantly uh, the culture of some twenty centuries later. Uh, so I think I think this whole question. Uh, needs a deeper uh, examination uh, than has been present to this point uh, in what could be called the Hurtado school, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know. So I I have uh, you know, great appreciation for uh, for Larry's work, and uh, have read it, have talked with him about it. And we sort of had an agreement that whether uh, to whatever degree it was the the development of a textual culture, it was still a culture of sound in the ancient world. Sure.
0: And Uh, I think most of us in the Guild will recognize that texts were read aloud, even if we uh, let slip of the idealization of a reader from time to time. I wonder though, uh, is it a further step altogether to assume that they were were universally performed for audiences in the worship service? Um, For example, Justin Martyr, in the second century, writes about hearing the memoirs of the apostles, uh, the gospels presumably, uh, read aloud as part of early Christian worship, as time permitted, and from um from the time a little bit later around 300 the diocletianic persecution we know of an office of readers or lectors who would sometimes possess the church's scriptures to familiarize themselves with their contents before they're read aloud in in a service Um, do you assume or get the sense that these are performances of texts or um, uh, of the more stoic or uh, reverent recitations of words as we're familiar with What lies behind your judgment there? Or are these full on performances? And does that continue through the early centuries of the church?
1: One of the dimensions of the performance tradition that has been lost by Protestants uh, as a uh, post Reformation community is the chanting of the scriptures uh, that has been preserved in the Eastern Orthodox tradition that has been preserved and developed in Rabbinic Judaism. So uh, uh, there continues to be a school for the training of cantors. Uh, the Hebrew Union uh, College uh, Seminary, you know, has a, uh, a program for the training of lectors uh, there's an office of lectors uh, that has been preserved. Uh, so uh, the dominant uh, way in which the, re- the uh, scriptures were uh, recited for centuries was with a chant, uh, with a, uh, a cantor. Uh, and cantillation of the uh, text. This is a this is a, a whole area of research that needs to be done, and of, of about which uh, biblical scholarship has largely been ignorant, uh, and has not taken seriously what the performance traditions were, uh, that they were not uh, uh, as we would. Call it readings. Uh, they were rather performances that required significant preparation. I studied with uh, a cantor. Uh, I'm by no means uh, a proficient, you know, cantor, but I do recognize that that's been a a, a major tradition that has had virtually no role at all in uh, gospel criticism.
0: So, um, if I read your argument correctly in in this book, um, you call for a, a pretty widespread reevaluation of all biblical texts as being experiences of hearing and orality. Uh, basically, under the premise that in order to interpret them correctly, we need to understand how they're received as uh, performed or spoken texts. In fact, in one place you say that we are wrong-headed in the way that we uh, uh, foreground textuality because we're using the wrong part of our head. Um, I see the point with Mark, of course. And sticking with the New Testament, I could perhaps be convinced that uh, you know other narratives as well function in much the same way, like Revelation. But Um, This is at least partially for me because you interact very well with um, the wider scholarship for Mark, to use that example once again, and you also contextualize the really, I think, groundbreaking emergence of the gospel as a performance composition. So this is me kind of wondering aloud (laughs) if performance criticism does or does not have the widespread potential, for example, for Pauline letters and the pseudepigraphal letters that... uh, Follow epistolary conventions in various ways, or for Luke Acts, which seems at least semi conscious in trying to uh, imitate Joseph in historiography. Uh, are these equally designed as compositions of sound for the ear as Mark's project is, or is it necessary to concede perhaps that uh, there are in the New Testament some products of a textual culture that were merely experienced as read because of poor literacy?
1: I think that there is abundant evidence of performance. The study, for example, of the impact of the memorization of the Hebrew scriptures by the authors of the New Testament is abundant. It was the degree to which uh, the New Testament uh, the, compos- the, the composers of the New Testament uh, knew intimately uh, the traditions of the Hebrew Scriptures. Primarily, what they knew was the Septuagint, was the 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 Greek translation of the Hebrew. And uh, but yes, I think there's a future for performance criticism in the study of the letters of Paul. Uh, they were, I think, intended to be read aloud to the congregations and that there are things that we will learn uh, in both the uh, canonical uh, writings uh, and also in the pseudepigraphal literature, which was equally uh, part of that the ancient uh, culture of performance, uh, so I think the that part of what we need to realize is that textuality did not mean silent reading. Mm-hmm. Textuality meant the distrib- the di- distribution of uh, compositions uh, of sound uh, that were uh, written down so that they could be performed more widely uh, as uh, as performance experiences mm-hmm. uh, once again the best analogy is, is the composition of music uh, you know the writing down of Mozart's sonatas did not mean that they stopped being heard the purpose of that was to increase the number of people who would hear the sonatas performed. Mm-hmm. Brahms became a very rich man because he, he composed, for example, his Hungarian dances, and, uh, uh, and they were performed by the rising middle class in Germany, uh, many of whom could play the piano. And so this new... Uh, Literature fed uh, a a whole culture of the performance of music uh, from texts. Uh, So the, the writing down of sound compositions in a manuscript that then can be appropriated, purchased, learned, and performed that's part of the history of uh, of both musical and uh, uh, literary compositions. So it's not a textuality. Do not mean silence.
0: Sure, um, I, I think you might admit, though, that uh, some things play better for uh, a performance for audiences. So Mark has a certain. Dynamic immediacy to it—a a, a snowballing narrative, whereas, for example, uh, since you uh, uh, appeal to John as perhaps being a performance uh, um, uh, um, a piece of performance literature, right. there, there's at one point where um, you know the narrative is broken up by a 25-minute monologue of Jesus. I, yeah. I don't, I'm not sure that quite plays as well. Or if you think of Matthew, if you try to think of the beginning of Matthew as um, being composed for performance, the, lo- the long genealogy doesn't s- doesn't seem to play as well as Mark's immediate kickoff of the narrative. So I'm just wondering, I suppose, if uh, uh, um, if we were to apply this to every New Testament book, would it all, would it all have the same resonance as it does for uh, for Mark, where I think the case is much uh, stronger?
1: Right. Well, uh, there's no doubt. That uh, the Gospel of Luke, for example, uh, takes a long time to perform. We've <laughs> done it at uh, festival gatherings, and that we've had to break it up into two evenings mm. uh, because we couldn't uh, do it in in one time because of the the relatively limited endurance of contemporary audiences.
0: Mm. Close to five hours, I would imagine
1: yeah uh, yeah four and a half yeah right um uh, and uh you know the Gospel of John is somewhat shorter than the Gospel of Luke mm-hmm. uh but it's uh it you know three and a half, four, between three and a half and four hours uh you know that's uh, uh you know uh, a performance of the Gospel of John. Uh, John John also has
0: sorry uh, sorry to interrupt. John also has two endings that seem to uh, um, reference its own writtenness. Right, these are written so that you might believe, and uh, if everything he said and did were written, it would you know contain multitudes. Or however it's put at the end of John twenty one. So so the Johannine uh, uh, correspondence, uh, the the output of the Johannine community seems a little more textual, perhaps, to me, at least.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's it's possible that there were a higher percentage of people who were literate uh, that were addressed by the Gospel of John. Uh, but we're talking, uh, say, a difference between uh, 10 and 15, maybe 20 percent of uh, potential audiences that would be addressed by the Gospel of John, one of the problems that we have, I think, is that we that our imagination is too limited in relation to what we think of audiences uh, can endure. I just uh, night before last saw the movie Oppenheimer. Mm. It's over three hours, yep. Uh, and so we have no problem imagining. Uh, a three- or four-hour movie. Uh, But because our traditions of performance of, say, things like the Gospel of Luke are so poorly done that audiences get lost, they get bored. Uh, Those uh, indications of textuality that uh, you describe at the ending of at the end of john the two endings uh, they are uh, they are both addressed to uh, audiences that would regard textuality as a sign of credibility Uh, so they were written so that audiences might believe them Hmm. Uh, and uh, And so they would take seriously uh, things that were composed and textualized uh, in a way that they wouldn't for something that was uh, simply an oral tradition. Uh, And it does reflect the degree of influence and authority that was present with written materials. Uh, that doesn't mean that they were silent. Sure. And it uh, it doesn't mean that they weren't experienced as part of uh, a composition, a, a performance of the whole gospel. Uh, one of the observations about the gospel tradition is that these four compositions are very distinctive. I don't know of any other literary tradition in the history of Western civilization that has four authoritative versions of the same story, Uh, as is present with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. uh, It's an extraordinary history that these that uh, say Mark was the earliest that it generated this uh, extensive uh, literary tradition uh, of composition and recomposition of different performances of uh, the stories of Jesus that in turn led credibility to the whole movement of uh, what became, uh, Christianity. Uh, so, uh, the, just a, a, a couple of words about the Gospel of John.
0: Uh, and for the record, this is uh, the last chapter of your uh, first century gospel storytellers and audiences. You talk about the Gospel of John much in the same way that you do
1: uh, Mark earlier in the book. Right. Yeah. What happens in the course of the development of the gospel tradition from Mark to Matthew to Luke to John, is that in each of those stories, a higher percentage of the overall composition is devoted to the uh, the teachings, to the character, the development of the character of Jesus. So, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of Mark, approximately. A fourth of the gospel is the teachings of Jesus. There are really only two significant discourses uh, in in the gospel of Mark. In the gospel of Matthew, that is extended, and there is a far greater emphasis on the development of the character of Jesus and of experience for the audience of Jesus standing in their midst and teaching them. That's also true with the Gospel of Luke. When you get to the Gospel of John, over 50% of the Gospel is Jesus standing in front of an audience, uh, talking to them as uh, Jews who are torn between believing in him and wanting to kill him uh, because of the extremely provocative uh, things that he says. So, what happens in the development of the gospel tradition is that, to put it uh, in my own terms, they found that the character of Jesus was more and more compelling the longer they told and developed the tradition, and 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 more people ex- expounded then and developed the Jesus tradition. They found that the the these longer gospels where there was more development of the character of Jesus and more interaction with that character uh, for audiences, the more people came to believe in him. Uh, They found it more effective. Uh, So they preserved Mark, but they developed further the characterization of Jesus in the development of the three Gospels that follow Mark. And in that sense, John is the most provocative of the four, and uh, and also a whole series of long discourses, mm-hmm. long speeches uh, that uh, are an invitation to the audience to pay attention, uh, but they require the audience to think, to examine. Uh, the questions that Jesus steadily raises about his relationship to the father, his uh, position in relation to the traditions of Israel. Uh, So, you know, I could go on, but it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable history uh, from the point of view of the composition of experiences of Jesus uh, that Uh, You can see with those four different versions uh, the creativity of the formation of the characterization of Jesus in the gospel tradition.
0: Indeed. Um, Let's uh, start to round out our conversation, Tom, since we've gone for uh, almost (laughs) two, or well over two hours now. Um, And basically, I want to... uh, Conceptualize how we proceed from here, and I guess I'll start by spelling out as clearly as possible my own uptake of performance theory, not being myself part of, uh, you know, your cohort, your your group. Um, I've taught Mark, uh, being uh, even if there are certain questions unanswered yet composed in performance, and I think that uh, your insights um, combine with traditional biblical criticism to help explain sort of the mystery of the appearance of a gospel so late. Uh, I mean, it's understandable why... uh, early Christians, early Jesus followers, would want to reframe their beliefs in light of the events of the Jewish-Roman War. Makes a lot of sense. And Mark sort of acts as a bridge between decades of oral transmission of Jesus stories that certainly took place and sort of emerging textual culture that I think probably quickly subsumes or cannibalizes the tradition for a literary register, as we see, you know, Luke taking, uh, uh, uh a great issue with Mark's use of historical present and his syntaxes and so on, and turning it into a much higher elevated story, quasi-historiographical almost. Um, basically, uh, he and Matthew weaving in different sets of sayings of Jesus, and as you say, emphasizing this character of of Jesus in ways that uh, Mark is comfortable letting uh, exist in parabolic statements, perhaps. Um, and at the same time, you know, Matthew and Luke, they give Mark a proper ending and a proper beginning, uh, and you know, they, they fill out more of the narrative, and I think that they do it some in, in a very literary way. John, for me, may be an attempt to return to form of performance but I'm not sure exactly how committed I am to that at this point as we have conversed as we have talked before, you know John may in some sense be an imitation of Mark, but does he really understand what Mark was doing uh, these are questions that I still have kicking around in my head. so but I sense for you that you you see more than just Mark as being, explicitly composed for performance. So uh, does my little telling here not go far enough for you? And if so, how would you characterize that post-Markan period for yourself if you were asked to give a brief imaginative history of these uh, Jesus stories as they expand beyond Mark? Yeah,
1: well, the stories, all of them were composed for performance. Okay. Uh, There's no significant media difference between Mark and John in terms of performance traditions. Uh, John is longer, it's more complex, it's more demanding of the audience, uh, of the audiences, but there is no indication uh, in those Gospels that the assumption of the composers was that they that the readers would have a long scroll that they would unroll as their and read in silence as their experience of the gospel. I think that's very unlikely. Both for pragmatic reasons. Clearly, things were, you know, scrolls were read. The Library at Alexandria it was full of uh you know, long scrolls, so people did read them, uh, but uh, they would read them aloud, uh, and uh, and I think it's fairly unlikely because of the uh, the cost, the uh, the relatively difficult uh, way of reading. Uh, that, that scrolls required uh, that uh, they may have been read by individual readers, but even when reading as individuals, they tended to read aloud. Uh, the story of uh, Augustine's uh, uh, explanation of Ambrose strange tradition that in such a, an eminent figure must have been for a good reason that he would sit and look at a manuscript and wouldn't make any sounds and that he would do that because he on the one hand needed to preserve his voice as a, a rhetorician and on the other hand he, he was constantly surrounded by people wanting to talk to him and of uh, busyness and and so he would read in order to, in silence in order to concentrate. Uh, but in uh, uh, so Augustine has to explain uh, why his mentor, uh, the person who he respected probably more than virtually anyone else, uh, would do this strange thing of reading in silence. This is a fourth century. So, I think we need to re examine what we mean by literary traditions and how they were experienced. The literature of the New Testament uh, is very interesting in relation to this extraordinary development of these four gospels being composed within, I mean, with a conservative reading, which I would tend to prefer that the Gospels were composed in the period of the reign of Vespasian, maybe the last years, the two-year reign of Titus, and the longer reign of Diocletian. I would tend to uh, see the Gospels as being composed in that period uh, of some 20 years. Now, there are those who would argue that Luke is later. Maybe as late as the second century, uh, into the reign of Trajan. At that right, point, right? Yeah, right. Uh, I doubt that, uh, but you know that's possible. It's still a remarkable development that in a fifty-year period, uh, that there would be this explosion of literary creativity around the the uh, the composing of gospels for performances in for various audiences. So each of them, I think, was uh, inspired to compose their gospels in order to communicate the gospel to different communities. So as you have, I think, rightly observed, you know, Luke uh, is addressed to a more literate, community that was more open to uh, Gentiles uh, than, say, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, right and, which and uh, and I would add to that the Gospel of John, uh, in which there are no Gentiles uh, at all. Uh, one of the uh, strange anomalies. The only time the Gentiles appear is when uh, Philip and Andrew asked, uh, uh, are asked by Greeks that they, they'd like to, and I assume they're Greek-speaking Jews, uh, wanted to talk with Jesus, and Jesus doesn't talk to them. Hmm. Uh, and uh, they're the only Gentiles in the gospel. So, uh,
0: and Pilate at the end, of course.
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, but... Uh, right. Uh, <clears throat> it's very different. Uh, than, say, Mark or Luke mm-hmm. um, in terms of the treatment of Gentiles in the story. Uh, so anyhow, that's, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, indications that, uh, that these traditions were composed for composition, uh, for performance to various audiences. Sure, segments of the community of of the diaspora, of the the greater greco-Roman, and I would add Parthian world uh, that uh, in the in the reign of those emperors.
0: And I hope that it's uh, one of the outcomes of this uh, of this conversation that we had that uh, scholars who
1: are interested or listeners
0: who are interested will take up the mantle and think about uh, the Gospels as performance literature and other New Testament books as perhaps being performance literature. Um, uh, Tom, I'm looking at the time as it's ticking by here, and uh, I see that I've taken up <laughs> a lot of your family time today, but it's been a pleasure to speak with you about your uh, life's work here. Um, I guess I would ask you, what remains to be done, or where would you like to see performance critics take their attention next? Uh, Is there anything that you are working on, or uh, is there more to be discovered in Mark, or do you prefer to see the other Gospels explored in this same way? And uh, you've also expressed uh, a desire for uh, biblical scholars to commit to peace studies, which is kind of an outcropping of the way that you evaluate Mark. So on the whole, I'm just kind of curious to know, uh, where your personal interests lie in the future, in your in this final period of scholarship for you, and what we might see from
1: you uh, going forward. Right. Well, I expect that uh, the the period of my uh, productivity uh, is increasingly short. <laughs> it's, it's not. Uh, uh, I mean, that's true for everybody, but I'm getting old and uh you've so been at I this hope... for a long time to be fair right uh but i hope that uh i hope that all new testament scholars become performance critics uh and uh and extend the study of the gospels as performance literature i can foresee for example a a Uh, a new series of commentaries that would be uh, oriented toward uh, the study of the, uh, of biblical literature Mm -hmm. as uh, performance literature. Uh, I think a lot would be learned from uh, such an engagement. Mm -hmm. And it will take a generation uh, of uh, training, of the reorientation of the PhD training universities and seminaries. Uh, At this point, uh, the people in those prestigious positions are all textualists (laughs) uh, who uh, assume silent readers. Uh, I would look forward to those positions being filled with people who are uh, both sensitive to and sympathetic to uh, performance concerns mm-hmm. uh, and would uh, revise their pictures of uh, the ancient world and of the biblical literature as a whole and the Gospels in particular, and specifically the Gospel of Mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think it would uh, both strengthen and, uh, and I don't know, it would help to spread uh, the good news of uh, how interesting the New Testament is. Sure thing. Uh, and uh, it would be good for teaching. It would be good for worship. Uh, it would be good for people individually to have learned a series of these stories that uh, would be available then in times of crisis Hmm. uh, for, uh, uh, you know, not unlike uh, my experience uh, after the accident. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I can imagine uh, a a new reformation uh, (laughs) that uh, would recontextualize uh, the development of historical criticism. Uh, and would p- put it in a uh, in a different context. And I hope there's there is a special need, and I'm not going to be able to achieve this. I can already see to reevaluate the Gospels as Gospels of peace. Uh, the uh, the context of the Jewish war. As the the generative event that set in motion the formation of the Gospels is, I think, very important. It's important for the world uh, to take more seriously uh, Jesus as uh, as a Messiah of peace uh, than is currently the case. Uh, I think that that the world needs to understand that warfare simply breeds more warfare uh, and that uh, the way of Jesus of reconciliation with enemies is of extreme importance for the human community in the decades ahead and so there are a series of scholarly projects that I'd like to undertake uh, and, uh, uh, this conversation uh, has increased my interest in, mm-hmm. in doing that. Uh, I'm very appreciative of the initiative that you've taken, Rob, uh, to generate this conversation. Uh, it's both uh, an honor and a privilege, but I think it's also uh, it's also important uh, in relation to the current situation in the world. Uh, So I I have a lot of hope uh, for where this may lead.
0: Indeed. Well, reforming the world is an ongoing struggle. I don't think that that's going to be complete in any age, exactly. Um, And and new paradigms like that which uh, you and your cohort uh, of performance critics uh, seek to uh, advance, they take time. Uh, As you say, it it may be a generation or so, but you've provided a great model with your Messiah of Peace uh, commentary, which takes three chapters from Mark, and there's, uh, of course, more work to be done on the rest of Mark and then the Gospels if people uh, carry the the ball forward in, in that direction. But okay. uh, Tom, it's been a, a delight to speak with you. Um, so thanks so much for your time, for your work on the Gospels in their, in their native uh, media culture and for being our guest on the New Books Network.
1: My joy. Wonderful. Thank you, Rob.
0: Again, uh, Dr. Boomershine's new book is called First Century Gospel Storytellers and Audiences, uh, The Gospels as Performance Literature, and it's available now from Cascade Books, an imprint of Wipf and Stock. We've also talked about his 2015 performance criticism commentary on the Gospel of Mark, and especially its uh, passion resurrection narrative, entitled The Messiah of Peace. It, it also has a long uh, subtitle that I won't repeat here, but it was published as well within the same uh, biblical performance criticism series by Cascade Books. Um, And and that book, indeed, has a companion website where you can hear uh, Tom's recorded performances of that Passion Resurrection narrative of Mark in both English and Greek, if you so choose. And the URL for that collection of performances is www.messiahofpeace, that's all one word, no spaces or hyphens or anything, messiahofpeace.com. So all that said, uh, I've been Rob Heaton, your host in New Testament and Early Christian Studies for New Books and Biblical Studies, and I'll be with you again on your next download. But in the meantime, never stop questioning. Thank you. Bye-bye.